Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And so the beginning of the brainstorming process is throwing ideas out and logging them. Um, uh, getting everybody's ideas. You don't know where the ideas are going to come from. In an organization, this is something I learned from the laboratory. In an organization, um, it's very important to separate the ideas from the people who hold them. Uh, that separation is important because you want to be able to criticize the ideas without having the people feel that, they're, that they are being criticized. And so there's a sort of objective distance that is optimal where someone can bring an idea into play but then allow it to be criticized or maybe even criticize it themselves. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Adam, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, I actually came across you by way of my publisher who sent me your book, The Right Kind of Crazy. And with a title like that, I couldn't resist. And not only that, when they told me what you actually do for a living, I thought, yeah, we have to talk to this guy. He's probably got a lot of really interesting and uh, amazing stories. So rather than give it away for our listeners, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how it has led to the right kind of crazy? Sure. Um, I, uh, I work now, uh, spoiler alert, I work at, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but my path to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory is not a standard one or, or perhaps represents the diversity of possible paths that one might follow in one's life. I was um, a not a very good student, uh, sort of raised by art-appreciating folks, um, and uh, was attracted to the arts and uh, theater and out of high school, did very poorly in high school, uh, was playing rock and roll, uh, was wanting to be a rock star. Uh, you know, no kid, no teenagers or early kids want to do that. And, um, and playing uh, gigs around the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, one night, um, as I went home from playing a show, I noticed the stars were in a different place in the night sky than they had been when I went out. Uh, this was amazingly the first time I'd really, like, paid attention to the stars. And uh, it, it ended up being the constellation of Orion, but I didn't know it at the time. 
and um, and it was on the other side of the bay when I was when I was coming home. I had clearly dropped the whole earth spinning on its axis thing that you learn in school from my consciousness. And I was curious. I was curious about why the stars were moving. And I was at a point in my life where I was willing to follow that curiosity and see where it would take me. Uh, first, it took me down to the local community college, College of Marin. And I tried to sign up for an astronomy course to teach me why the stars were moving. And um, it had with it a prerequisite of a physics course, but a conceptual physics course, physics for, without math. So I signed up for that physics class and boom, kind of the rest is history. It blew my mind. The idea that the world was governed by a set of laws that were relatively simple and elegant and beautiful and that you could understand them and that you could use them to predict the way that the physical universe would work uh, just turned me on and I wanted to learn. And, uh, and, and so I started with refreshing or replacing my deficient high school education and went up through eventually a PhD in engineering physics and I uh, work at JPL and I land spacecraft on other planets. <laughs> All right. So there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff here that I, I, I want to dig back into. I mean, you mentioned that you weren't uh, a good student in high school and that uh, you grew up around parents who were artistic types. Uh, one, I'd like to hear about that in more depth. I mean, uh, even before uh, high school and realizing, because I, I know that you, you mentioned in the book that you almost even dropped out of high school uh, and didn't yeah. do well at all. Uh, I'm just curious, I mean, what that whole experience was like. And then, of course, um, how did the experience of, of having sort of this uh, exposure to the arts um, and this interest in music and, and all those things uh, end up shaping uh, your perspective on the work that you did later on? Well, so um, I was raised, you know, uh, my family was, my parents were brilliant, beautiful people who I love very much, but they were, you know, they were not, um, I don't think that they were, uh, certainly my father was not fulfilled. He was an alcoholic for most of the time that I was growing up. He didn't work. Uh, he was the uh, inherited some money from family wealth, um, not really enough to do much with, or he didn't do much with it except for sort of spend it. Uh, but that meant that they read, uh, we traveled. Um, my mother, who was sort of the antithesis of my dad, she was uh, sort of a self-made woman. She had lied about her age at 17 to join the U.S. Army and learn to fly aircraft to shuttle bombers around during World War II. So she was a very independent-minded uh, woman, very creative, uh, architect, very mechanically gifted. My father actually was really a, a native engineer, but he also uh, you know, designed jewelry and was into photography, you, know, you name it. But so we traveled. We would see all the museums wherever we went. Um, uh, but we didn't work hard. Nobody really worked hard at anything. No one faced the edges of what they might be able to do. No one really especially my father, risked much. And so um, I, and in the same breath, my, my parents, certainly my father, really wanted my brother, and I have a younger brother, Peter, um, who ended up, is really an artist, lives in France. But um, uh, we, he wanted us to do well. My dad wanted us to do 
to sort of, uh, he used to say, I want some performance out of you, damn it. Um, which I used to think of like asking for a seal to clap their hands or something. But um, I, I, uh, so I rebelled against that. I rebelled against uh, his pressure. I rebelled against, uh, you know, maybe I thought actually trying was scary because it was somehow too scary for my dad to really, really do. And so um, we just were bad students, my brother and I both. And my parents didn't confront us with it. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You know, in high school, one day I, um, I was late for my, uh, my Latin class. And the teacher was a particularly nasty man who uh, would lambaste students when they spoke out in class and certainly if they ever came late. And so I paced out in front of the door waiting to go in, trying to get up my courage. And I paced long enough that the end of the period came and the bell rang and I went to my next class. And all through my next class, I was scared that the police were going to arrive or somebody was going to show and bust me for, for missing class. And nothing happened. And so the next Latin class, I did it again. And then I did it with my English class and so on and so forth. And eventually I stopped going to class altogether and kind of waiting to see what would happen. A couple, three weeks went by and my parents said, hey, we got a note from school that you aren't going to class. What's up? Their response wasn't very strong and I kind of stayed with it. So my, my sophomore and junior years in high school, I really didn't go to class much at all. Um, and they never really confronted it. So anyway, the, the short of it is I had this kind of amorphous childhood. I think I was sort of searching for structure, searching for boundaries, um, trying to come up against something solid. And I, and I didn't. And I broke a lot of bones, uh, r risking stuff, doing daredevil stuff, looking for those boundaries. And I, you know, missed a lot of class hours. Uh, and it was, you know, as I mentioned, it wasn't until I could do it on my own, follow my own curiosity, that I was willing to uh, put in the effort, put in the risk, mm -hmm. and uh, see what would happen. You, know, you said something in there uh, that really caught my attention. It was the idea of, of going to the edges of what you might be able to do. And I'm wondering, based on the perspective that you have had literally landing uh, spacecrafts on the moon, what you think it is that enables human beings to go to the edges of what they're able to do and what is it that keeps certain people from doing it? Well, um, I do think fear – so first question first, um, that is I don't, have a, I don't have a good short answer for you about what enables human beings to search for the edge of what is us, what can we do. But I absolutely believe that that is the right kind of crazy. We are very unusual creatures if, in comparison to all the other beasts on this planet and when you look at our behavior, one of the hallmarks of, of our humanity is this exploration. And that exploration is asking the question, what's over the next ridge? Can I get over the next ridge? How strong am I? How grand am I? What questions might I ask and hope to answer? So that's a real, uh, that curious 
stretching out to see what is possible is very, very essentially human. And what holds us back from it is fear, is fear that we will fail, fear that we won't measure up. Uh, it's certainly what held my father back. Yeah. Um, and I think actually it is in opposition to that model or lesson that he demonstrated for me that I push extra hard. I'm actually will very willing. And I think it's a generic good thing to be willing to find myself wrong as I search for what is right and true. You know, so I'm willing to take risks. I am attracted to even in my work, right? There's lots of aerospace engineers out there. There's lots of aerospace engineering projects to work on. But I'm attracted to the ones that are a little bit more risky, that are a little bit less certain. I'm attracted to the less certain problems, the problems that don't have a pat answer. Uh, because I, uh, the thing that I want to make sure is that I don't stop short of trying for fear of failing. So I'm willing to step out there and take the risk. Um, and I think many people are. All the, you know, I think all the people I work with are hundreds of my colleagues are willing to take that risk. And so, um, but those who aren't um, are, I think, thwarted because they fear that they will, um, their fear of judgment, their own judgment, really, in the end, their own criticism, fear that they won't measure up. Geez, I understand that. I'm scared to death. I wrote a book. Boy, that's not a, that's a scary process, putting your thoughts out there. Um, so it's the fear of, of failing. It's the fear of, um, of not measuring up really to your own expectation that I think holds people back. Um, but it, in general, as a species, it doesn't hold us back. And that's why I'm Skyping with you over the interweb. I mean, my dogs can't Skype. Um, the squirrels don't Skype. Uh, TCIP did not, you know, it, TCIP exists because of our crazy, stretching out, curious brains. And so uh, I'm just being a human. So you're continually put in situations uh, where the fear of being wrong and more importantly, the consequences of being wrong uh, are quite severe. And I'm wondering how, uh, and more importantly, what are the lessons in managing fear that uh, you've brought from that into your life in general and, and what people might be able to take away from that? That's a great, great question. Um, uh, the, re the, the, the searching out of the idea, of the concept, of something new or, 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 um, or what the truth is, I can remember even as a student doing this, um, requires – for me, I've, at least my personal practice, is, is to be comfortable with the open question and be quiet and not fearful that I'll get it wrong, not judgmental of how I'm groping for the solution, but just going for it. The image I have is reaching into the darkness with my hand and sort of feeling around for the solution. After that process, when you've dragged something out of the darkness and into the light, you've got to do a very different thing. You take a different part of your brain or, or your organization 
and you analyze it, you decompose it, you bring outside eyeballs that are ignorant to the things that drew you to that solution to look at and criticize it. And it's through that analysis process that you begin to understand whether that idea, that creative impulse was was a good one or not. <laughs> was it the right kind of crazy or the wrong kind of crazy? Um, uh, and so there, there's really two pieces to it, and they're sort of complementary and different. Um, one is the is the opening of the question and the looking for the solution in that openness, and that's a non-judgment uh, part. That's a no rules, no judgment, and only once the idea is out, either written down on paper or sketched on a whiteboard or drawn out through conversation with somebody else, then this analysis part comes. And, and you know, what we do at the lab, at the Jet Proposal Lab where I work, is we use um, external review, which is not uncommon in, in aerospace and engineering firms, but we bring outside eyeballs in to look at our work, uh, people who don't, who don't, aren't experts, maybe they're experts in a field that's adjacent or even similar, but they're certainly not experts in the design that we're, we're putting forward. And so to that extent, they bring kind of a beginner's mind to it and they can criticize mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and see the inventions that we're working on in uh, sort of a stark light and, and maybe perceive something differently than, than we did, the ones who sort of dreamed it up. So I want to talk briefly about that moment of curiosity uh, when you looked up in the stars. And I wonder why uh, so many people neglect or or don't do anything in moments like that or even just miss moments like that in their lives. Um, And the other question that is uh, a byproduct of that, of course, is, I mean, going from a high school dropout to a Caltech PhD working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory landing aircrafts on other planets or spacecrafts on other planets, that's a pretty drastic shift in identity. And I'm wondering uh, what happens internally and how that's possible um, and how do we enable that kind of change in our own lives? Okay, that's those are two fantastic questions. Um, uh, let me take the first one first. So for all of the you know, um, dysfunction of my upbringing for all of the classic and obvious dysfunction of my, my family growing up. And, you know, my dad would be drinking the sunrise to sunset. Um, uh, they absolutely instilled in me a curiosity and, uh, an appreciation for what curiosity can do. Um, I think their dysfunction meant I couldn't connect up with it until I was much later in life. And, and maybe that was even perfect because maybe in that sense, um, I was coiled and in, in anticipation until I had the tools and the, the horsepower to really uh, push forth and follow my curiosity. I don't know. But but um, I think that uh, what, what limits people from following their curiosity is, again, the, that uh, fear of change, you know, we, um, fear of failure, 
but also fear of just the change that the question, asking a question changes things. The answer changes our understanding of the universe. May, frequently in very, very small ways, like if I were to check on my telephone of what the temperature outside was, and I were to find it was a little cooler than I thought it was, that might change my opinion of the day, even though I'm looking at a beautiful, beautiful sunny day. Um, so those kinds of changes aren't very much, but some, some, some changes that uh, a question can, can bring, it can be profound uh, and, and really watershed. So um, it is, again, this, I think, fear. I think fear of change, um, and it's snowballs. You know, if you're, it snowballs in both ways. If you're willing to ask the question, it's the ultimate vote of self-confidence. Because you say, hey, world, I'm going to open up this question, and I'm going to, I'm confident that I can handle whatever change, whatever the truth that is discovered through opening that question and answering it, that I can handle that. It's a very, um, uh, it's a very, I think, powerful vote of self-confidence, and it allows you to ask another question and another one and another one. And I know people um, who don't do that and, in fact, who hate the open question and don't want to think about stuff. And each time they turn away from that question, it's a vote of no self-confidence. I don't have it in me to look into the unknown, to discover something new, and to process and move on with my life in light of that new knowledge and so it's a constant act of turning away. It's a very sad thing. Um, but so there you go. That's question number one. Slightly rambling. I hope it's acceptable. Mm -hmm. What was your second question? The identity shift. Oh, uh, yeah. From you know, being yeah. somebody who nearly flunks out of high school to being a Caltech PhD and landing spacecrafts on the moon. I mean, that's a pretty drastic change. Right. So yeah. – um, Yes, so there is a big identity shift. Uh, you know, so I live in Southern California. And I was raised in Northern California, in Marin County. Uh, super liberal. Um, uh, and I, you know, died in the wool, deep hippie in some ways. But I just adore Southern California because in the desert... Uh, let me back up. Southern California is frequently criticized by people in Northern California for being, oh, empty, culturally empty, even though the culture, it, it massively influences the culture of the world. Uh, it's criticized, at least when I was growing up in Northern California, for being culturally empty, just filled with superficiality. And it's a desert. The desert's not really filled with life. Well, um, I love that. I love that cultural desert, and to some extent that's true. I wouldn't say... Just like the real desert, which I love to go out into, the real desert is actually filled with life. If you know where to look for it and you know how to listen for it. Same thing is true in Los Angeles and Southern California. But it is true that Southern California has a culture that is fractured enough that you can rewrite or write for yourself, write yourself again in any form down here. So, circling back to your question, the identity shift was big. And, um, and part of it 
um, not only was there a shift from being an artsy person interested in the arts to being interested in the sciences and engineering, uh, there was a shift um, into doing. My parents had just thought about stuff and sat around thinking about stuff, and I wanted to do stuff. Uh, there was a shift from Northern California to Southern California. Um, there was a uh, an ability to um, let go of some of the things in my past. Uh, there was a transformation um, that Southern California was part of because I was free from uh, – it was, I was free. Uh, you know, uh, for all the purported to- tolerance of Northern California, it's um, – it's not really widely tolerant of, <laughs> of very diverse views, in my opinion. Um, and I really, I, I actually, I, somehow I was in touch with that, what I consider to be hypocrisy. And since I'm a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, I'm, I'm most critical of those who share the beliefs most closely aligned with my own. And, um, and so coming down to Southern California allowed me to, to be my own person and, um, and define myself on my own terms. And... Uh, and that was very much part of an identity shift uh, that happened with this whole transformation. I had to turn. Yes. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Do you think that everybody is capable of those kinds of identity shifts? I guess it's really, um, you know, it's, I find myself talking about risk a lot here. Uh, I personally think that there are very few failures that await us in life that are as bad or de- as debilitating as the fear of them is. Now, there's some things you shouldn't do, you know, jump out of an airplane without a parachute or even in a wingsuit or all some of that crazy wackadoo stuff. I mean, then you're really rolling the dice and, 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 the, and the failure that awaits you is like crippling or death. You know, so, but um, within, you know, polite society, there's not a lot of things you can do. Um, there's not a lot of exploration that you can do. There's not a lot of, of, of um, seeking out that you can do. The answers or questions that you can ask, the answers of which are um, are worse for you than the fear of asking the question. And so, uh, but I, I think many times people don't see that. I think many, it, certainly, you know, this is the gift of my father. He was frozen. My dad was brilliant, right? He, would, he did furniture, he did photography. He became a leading expert in the artificial insemination of sheep. He studied horticulture in Sussex. He... Um, uh, they built this beautiful and restored this beautiful hacienda in 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 Mexico in Sonora, Mexico, and he hand forged all of the hinges and all of the door lock and window mechanisms in the entire place. Right? He was an artisan. He was an engineer, but he would never cross the threshold and take that risk of really putting himself his creative. Uh, his creativity on the line. And so in a definite move to not want to be my dad, (laughs) um, I have chosen repeatedly to do that. And um, I think that's a a great gift from him that it it is that impulse I have to, uh, you know, I love him. He's passed, but you know, I don't bear him any grudges. Um, but I, uh, I think that his lasting gift for me is the impulse to not be trapped as he was by his fear. Let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Okay. And let's start talking about the process of what goes on to land a spacecraft on the moon, because I think the creative process behind that is probably a lot more complicated than say, uh, publishing a podcast or putting a book out. And so I want to talk about 
what that creative process looks like, the framework that this book offers, and how we might start to apply this uh, to our lives, which I realize is a very big question. Great. Well, at, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory where I work, we work in teams. In fact, when I look back at it, I think that most of the great works of humanity, not the great ideas, but the great works, are all accomplished in, in teams. And so um, the way we work and the way, for instance, the sky crane was invented was a group of people sitting in a room uh, brainstorming, looking for a solution to a problem that we didn't know how to solve. Um, when we do that, we take on a um, – I'm holding in my hand so you can't see it – my two hands making a lesser than and a greater than symbol – um, the lesser than symbol or, or, or uh, the lesser than symbol looking like a crescendo symbol in music um, uh, means this opening process. And so the beginning of the brainstorming process is throwing ideas out and logging them, um, uh, getting everybody's ideas. You don't know where the ideas are going to come from. In an organization, this is something I learned from the laboratory, in an organization um, – it's very important to separate the ideas from the people who hold them. Uh, that separation is important because you want to be able to criticize the ideas without having the people feel that, they're, that they are being criticized. And so there's a sort of objective distance that is optimal where someone can bring an idea into play but then allow it to be criticized or maybe even criticize it themselves. One tool I've used at points uh, in the past is to ask team members to bring ideas into play but make the three central arguments for the concept and the three central arguments against the concept that they are bringing to the team. This in an effort to establish that objective distance between the idea that you've thought of and yourself and see it sort of in, in more three-dimensional um, uh, in more three dimensions in, in, or multidimensionally and so see it with its warps and its wrinkles. So the first part is idea generation. And after you've done some time with that, sometimes that will be an hour, sometimes that can be days. But when you feel that sort of you've vented all of the creative juices, at least for the time being, then you go into bringing in the analytical portion of your minds, the other half of the brain, and you go in towards this judgment, beating the ideas against each other, this sort of intellectual competition between ideas, um, uh, and, and search for the fittest of the, of the ideas. And sometimes hybrids emerge in this process, and sometimes it's cyclical. Sometimes you, you unearth through that analysis process another domain another region to be mined for new ideas and you pause and you go mine new ideas in this idea generation phase in that new regime in that new basin of attractions it would be and then bring back the um the uh, analytical portions of of the process uh, and so that's how the sky crane was born that's how a lot of the ideas that uh that have helped the laboratory um, be successful over the years, they come out of a process that frequently looks like that. 
so how do you uh, test assumptions and deal with the possibility of being wrong in situations where the stakes are so high? I mean, this doesn't sound as simple as split testing a web page where if the consequences are the copy didn't convert, whereas in your case, the consequences are much more severe if you're wrong. Right. It, it can be billions of taxpayers' dollars on the line. So, um, so, uh, so we have – there are um, maybe three tools that are avail- could be available to somebody in, in our field. They are test, analysis, and external review. And unfortunately for, um, for our landing system, when we put the big Curiosity rover on Mars and we landed that – the 2,000-pound – vehicle using the sky crane, we didn't have the ability to test. Mars has got a different atmosphere. It's got a different gravity, got a different speed of sound. It's, um, we cannot do an end-to-end test of our entry system, our entry, descent, and landing system. And so uh, we relied on analysis and external um, review. And so we did our best to test our assumptions. We um, built models of of how we thought our system should work, we uh, even dabbled in um, in sort of uh, ro- kind of role playing. Some people would be sort of designated as critics to try and tear down the um, uh, the ideas that we had, and then eventually we needed to turn to external eyeballs, people who are not invested in the solution, and and bring them in to look at it, to criticize it, to review it. And, and then for ourselves to try and be open and listening to that external criticism to <clears throat> see um, what we wanted to take to heart and what we thought they didn't have right. And so it's, it's, uh, it's deploying those, those tools. And you have to. You can't, or at least I'm unaware because in my profession it's all done in teams – I'm unaware of how one could sit by themselves and go through this whole cycle without getting some external perspective sort of uh, um, driven into the process. Where have you made really costly mistakes um, in the process of doing things like this, and what have you learned from those mistakes? Well, that's a good one. First, of course, you learned the most from your mistakes. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Let me think of a good example of a costly mistake. Well, we've lost some spacecraft going to Mars. Um, those have been, um, you know, in the in the nineties uh, when we put we put a, a spacecraft called the Mars Pathfinder on the surface of Mars in nineteen ninety seven, and it had been twenty years since um, we'd been to the surface of Mars. And the first time and last time that we'd been to the surface of Mars had been through the Viking missions, Vikings 1 and 2. And um, we hadn't been back to the the surface of Mars for so long because it it was so costly to build one of these uh, big um, missions. And so in the 90s, the new NASA NASA administrator, Daniel Golden, asked the question, how can we greatly reduce costs of exploration? Can we embrace risk, look to new methods, new ways, less documentation, less protocols, more driving straight towards the solution, acknowledging risk, um, and, and explore for greatly reduced costs? And the first mission out of the, out of the 
shoot uh, with that was the Pathfinder mission. And it was called Pathfinder, not because we didn't know how to go to Mars, but it was kind of a new way of doing business. And it was successful. Um, we, we did that mission for about $350 million, which was about one-tenth the cost of the Viking missions. And unfortunately, we didn't stop there. We sort of got a little addicted to the limbo game and asked, how low can you go? And uh, the, fo- the next missions that followed on were uh, the Mars Polar Lander and the Mars Climate Orbiter. And we tried to do two missions for basically that $350 million or so. And we found that we went too low. The limbo bar was too low. We lost actually both of those missions for different reasons. For different specific reasons, but they can all be sort of captured in we didn't spend enough time and have enough people because we were trying to strip down the team. We were trying to strip down processes and we stripped them down too far and we ended up losing both missions. So that was a big blow to the Mars exploration program and, you know, big blow to NASA. And, um, and so the big lesson that we learned there is you can't just keep stripping it down. There is a cliff out there. And if you don't have enough people, these external eyes to which I told you about, right? None of us works alone. We're working in teams. We're working with people checking on our work, all trying to catch misses to, um, to find holes in our assumptions, holes in our perception. And, um, and we went too low with that, with, the, with uh, the Mars Polar Lander and the Mars Climate Orbiter. You find that uh, failures like that uh, have impacted people's confidence in their own abilities, and if so, how they recovered from that internal uh, sort of damage that might occur when they experience a failure. Yeah. Um, it does shake your confidence. It really does. Um, you retrench. You know, what, what it does is it shows you that you were wrong about something, uh, which is good. It's a great act of humility. Um, I find that I'm wrong about something several times a day. And it's good to keep um, uh, savvy, keep in your four mind the fact that you can be wrong and it's happened before and it will likely happen again and try and be cautious and careful about it um but it doesn't mean you're wrong about everything and so the process at least my process has been okay i don't know as much as i thought i know or thought i knew let me backtrack and what am i very certain of and you back away, you sort of go back home in some sense, and you home down into that which you really know to be true, and you work your way and build your way back out from that. And um, uh, that's what you do. And it's, uh, it can, some people are, it's, you know, this exploration of space that we do at, the, at, at JPL and at NASA, um, it's not for the faint of heart. There is risk involved. Uh, you can put an awful lot, of, a lot of, your, of your blood, sweat, and tears into something, and it can fail. And that process is not for everybody. And some people respond by just leaving. 
um, we lost some good people after some of our failures and even after some of our successes. We, we, when we landed uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers mission, we, we um, put two fantastic uh, solar-powered rovers about the size of a coffee table on the surface of Mars in 2004. And one of them is still alive today, uh, out, out beating all the odds of longevity. They were only supposed to last 90 days. But I can tell you that some folks from our team, from the landing team, quit after that. They said, you know, this is just too stressful. And they moved away and moved out of space and went to other parts of the country and just took a more a peaceful life. So it's not necessarily for everybody. But when you have a failure, when you recognize that you were wrong about something, you start back with what you do know to be true and you build your confidence back up that way. At least that's what I've done. And, um, and it's worked for me. What um, are the implications uh, of the work that you guys are doing around space exploration for uh, the future of humanity? And how does the work that people like Elon Musk are doing and, and you know, the kinds of things that we're seeing at places like Singularity University coincide or uh, you know, working in parallel to what you guys are doing? Which I realize is a, a very, very big question. Yeah, well, it's huge. It's profound. Um, well, there are like – yeah, great. There's like five – major watersheds of thought in the question you just asked me. Um, I'll start with the, um, the easiest. So we're, um, when we explore frequently, we're going out to answer specific science questions. Um, and, uh, and those questions can be quite, um, they can be trivial. Uh, they can be profound. And they can be as profound as, are we alone? You know, are we, um, is all this life we see teeming all over this planet, the only life in our universe? Is it the only life in our solar system? Um, so you can be asking and, and hoping to answer um, a science question. And that science question can be as profound as, um, you know, is there life um, uh, other places. But there is more when we explore. I think people like Elon are driven to explore for, for questions that are more profound than, um, or for reasons that are more profound than just the science questions. Um, when we explore, I think we are also fundamentally acting out our humanity. Exploration is not a particularly practical or not at least obviously practical um, act, but like all the great acts of our species, it is uh, a gesture of who we are. Art, theater, music, architecture, literature, sport, um, these are not particularly practical pursuits. It doesn't necessarily put more food on the table, um, necessarily, if I paint a beautiful painting. But um, we do it nonetheless. We do it because we're driven to do it. We do it because it's, we are these curious beasts searching for the edges of what we might be and be able to do. That is perhaps the most profound reason for us to explore. And there is a practical benefit to it. Um, 
you know, we have, and many have noted this, uh, uh, George Church, the, the famous gen- geneticist in, at Harvard, um, Elon, um, uh, I was with Fred Hayes, the Apollo 13 astronaut a couple weeks ago, and he was mentioning this. You know, being on this planet, we do suffer from some concentration risk is what they'd call it in, in, um, in risk analysis uh, field. That is to say we're all on this single rock together. And an event, an external event could come along here and, um, and wipe us out, wipe all of us out. And so I think some folks look to Mars um, or other destinations as a way of helping uh, uh, lessen our concentration risk. Uh, and that may be true. It certainly is true. I don't, I don't know. You know, I think some of the greatest risks that we face on this planet are not external risks, like an asteroid pl- plumbing into us, although that risk is, is non-zero. There's no doubt about that, and we should be watching for that and prepared to act. But I think the greatest risks uh, that we face here on Earth come from ourselves and our own behavior. And I suspect that the engineering, the care, the discipline needed to make Mars, for instance, a place to live that would be palatable and tolerable and support life – are the same kinds of engineering, discipline, and care needed to keep Earth um, a good place to live uh, and protect it from its greatest threat, which I think is our, our folly. So um, uh, there are many, many reasons for us to explore. I welcome the presence of the privateers like uh, Bezos and uh, Musk and other um, privateers who are, uh, you know, privatizing that beautiful expression of our humanity that is the exploration of our universe, including the exploration of space. Wow. Uh, that was incredible. So I have one last question uh, okay. for you, which is how we finish all our interviews. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Access to its essence. I think when we, um, the essential is a very uh, important thing to me, finding the essential, calling out the essential. And when we see the essential, that is unmistakable. That is, that, that, that is what, how we know what we are looking at. Um, and sometimes that is clouded. Um, in noise and clutter, uh, and so getting through to that is is uh, is itself essential. So um, I think what makes something unmistakable is the accessibility of its essence. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, this has been really really cool, uh, and I I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, and share your insights and, and your story with us because this again was a really, really different perspective on creativity and, and making things. And uh, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. I had a good time. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? 
Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.